We are actually in our very last uh, sermon in this series called The Power of Weakness, The Power of Weakness. And uh, if you remember The Power of Weakness, this uh, sermon series really has been based upon 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read the section of what Paul writes there. It says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's this very interesting picture of God's upside-down, inside-out, backwards-to-forwards kingdom, God's economy. We've looked over the last few weeks at the idea of forgiveness, of meekness, and of suffering, and today we'll be looking at the topic of humility. Before we begin, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Um, I thank you that you have drawn these people into this place, even as David mentioned a few moments ago, that we are the vineyard that you have planted, Father, and you are helping us to be fruitful. You're helping us to grow, Father. Sometimes that involves uh, water, sometimes it involves sunlight, sometimes it involves pruning. I pray, Father, that we would entrust our, our lives, our hearts, our minds, um, even our families, Father, and our domains to you, our good Heavenly Father, and your Son, Jesus, our Savior. It is in his name that we pray today. Amen. So uh, my opening illustration today, I'm going to be talking about somebody who's not really that well-known, right? It's easy sometimes when you start off with an illustration, you want to use something that everybody's heard of. Well, I'm going to tell something that maybe not everybody is that familiar with. Back in 2017, there was an unlikely hero in the NFL. Some of you have heard the name Nick Foles. Nick Foles was a backup quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. There's a picture of him right there. The starter that year for the Eagles was a guy named Carson Wentz. They had a great defense. They had a great offense. And uh, Foles sat patiently throughout the year on the bench until Carson Wentz tore his ACL at the very end of the season. And then at the very end of the season, Foles, fresh off the bench, backup quarterback, had to step in and take the reins. They won their first playoff game. They won their second playoff game. They won the NFC Championship game, and then he had to start in the Super Bowl. In the Super Bowl, he threw for almost 400 yards and three touchdowns, and this former backup quarterback ended up being the Super Bowl MVP for the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. He went from rags to riches. Now, you would assume that the story might go something like this. The next year, he won the starting job, and he led the Eagles to another successful season. That's not what happened at all. In fact, when Carson Wentz got healthy, Foles went immediately back to the bench and took his place there. Now, if you um, remember anything about this story, you'll know that different pundits, sports pundits in the news, had all sorts of debates about whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. But in his 2018 book called Believe It, Foles writes this. I'm going to read two sections of his book. He says this, What they saw as a rags, riches to rags sports story, I see as part of God's divine plan. I've said all along that my desire is to play for God's glory, not mine. And that's exactly what I plan to do. My unique path from backup to Super Bowl MVP to backup again is a powerful message to share with people. And God has given me an ideal platform to do that from, to cheerfully return to a backup role after reaching the pinnacle of the sport, contradicts everything the world tells us about success, fame, money, and self-worth. To me, he writes, 
It's a tangible reminder that we are called to humility and to a life of service. Some people might think that I deserve a better deal, but it's not about what I deserve. It's never been about that. The truth is I've already been given far more than I deserve. A wonderful family, a job that I love, grace and forgiveness, great friends, coaches and teammates. Everything I have is a gift from God, and I'm thankful for all of it. I am where I am now because of God's grace, and I'll continue to follow wherever he leads. What a great picture of humility. And let me tell you, there were any number of stories that I could have used that would have uh, painted a picture of humility. I could have chosen any number of people who willingly laid down their rights, who gladly placed the spotlight upon others, and who served selflessly while thinking very little about what they might gain. Unfortunately, in recent history, humility seems to have fallen out of favor. I think maybe we could agree on that. Our culture rewards people who desperately, almost desperately, and narcissistically place themselves in the limelight, and they beat their chest demanding to be seen. The system rewards it. Think of former UFC champion Conor McGregor. Think about actor Alec Baldwin or influencer Kim Kardashian. By the way, I'm not saying that to throw them under the bus. I don't know if they're arrogant or not, but I went to a website and typed in most arrogant famous people, and that's what popped up. Anyway, not only has humility fallen out of favor societally, but even when people in our culture do try to be humble, it's exactly that. It's trying to be humble and mostly without much success. In a recent Atlantic article entitled, Truly Humble, to be the author of this article, columnist David Brooks challenges what passes for humility these days. He points to a tweet from the president of the European Central Bank, and there he writes this, I was humbled to be awarded an honorary degree by the London School of Economics earlier this week. Thank you so much for this prestigious honor. Brooks notes that there are three rules for this kind of pseudo-humility. His first rule is this, never tweet about any event that could actually lead to true humility. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I went to a party and no one noticed me. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I got fired for incompetence. His second rule, use the word humbled when the word proud would even be more accurate. For example, example, truly humbled to be keynote speaker at the TEDx East Hampton. The key to humility display is to use self-effacement as a tool to maximize your self-promotion. In other words, use humility as a way to gain power. Number three, never use a pronoun. Start your tweets with humbled to be or honored to be. This sends the message that you have only a few seconds to dash off this tweet because you're so busy and so important. We used to dance around our humble bragging, but now, Brooks says, our so-called humility is explicit assertive, direct, and unafraid. We blaze forth so much humility that it's practically blinding. Humility, he writes, is the new pride. I'm afraid that he might be right. I think the question is, what is humility? Is humility even good? Is humility actually maybe a character flaw? And of course, what does the Bible have to say about humility? Let's take a look and see what we find there. What is humility? Miriam Webster defines humility as freedom from pride or arrogance. Freedom for pride or arrogance. Makes sense. The English word humility is derived from the Latin word humilis, which means to be low. In the New Testament, the Greek word for humility is this lengthy Greek word, tapi nof rosu ne. It means to have a deep sense of one's smallness or 
lowliness. It can mean modesty. It can mean a willingness to defer to others when appropriate. There are even New Testament words which are translated humility that offer some more nuance. One of the words in Hebrew that we translate as humble is a word ani, A-N-I. The word ani refers to situation or to circumstance. In other words, the ani are those people who find themselves in a lowly condition because they're economically poor or they're politically powerless or they're physically disadvantaged in some way. Often the ani in the Old Testament are in that position because of other people who are wicked or because of circumstances that are outside of their control like famine, plague, or a corrupt political system. There's three more words in Hebrew for uh, humble. The next word is anav, A-N-A-V. It, on the other hand, um, also can be translated as humility, but it means not lowliness of position so much, but a lowliness of character. Whereas ani is the hand that's been dealt to you in life, anav is a choice that you as an individual make. Two other Hebrew words that are often translated as humility. One is uh, shafel, and the other is kana. Shafel means to intentionally lower yourself. So think about a parent who gets down on their hands and knees on the floor to play with an infant or a toddler. Kana, on the other hand, means a willing submission to someone else's will when it's appropriate. Picture Jesus teaching the disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what David was talking about this morning. So humility in the sense of the Christian virtue means to voluntarily make oneself low, to condescend, but in the good kind of way. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, a great man is always willing to be little. A great man is always willing to be little. That's Christian condescension. Humility also means to consider oneself honestly. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, when a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. Similarly, the Greek philosopher uh, Epictetus once said, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, that is, they're gossiping about you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer, he was ignorant of my other faults, else he would not have mentioned these alone. Does that make sense? Beat him to the punch. I'm worse than he thinks I am. True humility isn't defensive because the truly humble person knows that they have faults and flaws that go far beyond what other people might say about them. And that's not false humility. That's true humility. We are worse than we think we are. Humility also means being willing to defer to someone else, to let them have the limelight, to let them be the center of attention. Speaking of humility and mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following, Do not imagine that if you meet a truly or a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So hopefully, this mosaic of Hebrew words and Greek words and English words and even the Latin word humilis, hopefully once we put all of those together and those quotes from various thinkers, hopefully you have a decent picture 
of what biblical humility is, which leads us then to the next question, is humility actually important? Why is it good? In John chapter 8, Jesus told his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. At one level, as we talked about just a moment ago, humility is seeing ourselves accurately. When I was probably five years old, my mother made me a Superman cape, and it was a miniature version of the real thing. At the time, we were living in a duplex in Greenville, South Carolina, and the duplex had a a deck out back. And to a five-year-old, the deck seemed to be so, so high. In retrospect, it was probably about two or three feet off the ground. It was probably pretty low. But the first time I put on that cape, I actually believed that with it on, I might be able to fly. Maybe some of you can identify. So I went out on the deck, I climbed up on the railing, and I jumped off. Needless to say, I did not fly. Instead, I landed in a disappointed heap on the ground. Again, it was a good thing that the deck was on the first floor. Humility is important because it allows us to see ourselves. It allows us to see God, and it allows us to see the world around us truthfully or accurately. Any incorrect perception of those can have dire consequences. If you remember, when God introduces himself to Moses in the desert, God declares his name, I am. In other words, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am the irresistible force. I am the immovable object. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. As humans, we exist in relation to God, not the other way around. Several weeks ago, I used this example of these people called the sea gypsies who are born, who live, and who die on the ocean. They have an intimate knowledge of and dependence upon the sea, but they also realize that the ocean contains almost unfathomable mystery and power. They love the ocean, but they also have immense respect for it. The sea gypsies see the reality of who they are, and they see the reality of who the ocean is. And getting that relationship right or getting it wrong is a matter of life and death. Humility, therefore, is seeing both ourselves and God accurately. But why does that matter? Just a moment ago, I started to answer the question of why does humility matter by quoting Jesus' words found in John chapter 8, where he said, the truth shall set you free. What's at stake in humbly knowing who we are in relationship to God? Like, what's, what's, what does it matter? Jesus says in that passage that what's at stake is freedom. The truth shall set you free. So we live in a world of addiction. People are enslaved by social media. People are enslaved by food, pornography. They're enslaved enslaved by achievement and by what other people think about them. We're even slaves to exercise and to work. Most of you in this room this morning can close your eyes and you can easily feel the gravitational pull of whatever your addiction happens to be. What has the power to set you free from that addiction. According to Jesus, what has the power to set you free is the truth. The truth shall set you free. Of course, that is the truth about who he is and what he came to do and who we are. The last night of Jesus' life, he spoke these words to his father in a prayer. He said this, now this is eternal life that they, that is the disciples and all who would believe in him, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, or as he says elsewhere, that life that is truly life, comes from knowing God and his Son. And when we know God, 
and when we are known by him, we begin to accurately know ourselves. That knowledge begins the process of setting us free. So why else is humility important? Humility is important because God clearly values it. He even rewards it. In Psalm 147, verse 6, we read this, The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Then again in Psalm 49, verse 4, we read, For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with victory. Proverbs 18, 12 states, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Of course, Jesus echoes all of those themes about pride and humility. In Luke 18, he says this, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Over and over again in Scripture, we see this theme of God's relationship to those who are prideful versus those who are humble. It seems that sometimes God takes an active role in humbling those who are prideful, and it seems that at other times, He simply lets the natural course of life bring the arrogant to a low place. It may actually be that God's role at times in humbling the prideful is actually loving on His part. Why might that be? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So in our pride, we can't really know God. We can't really walk with Him. There's a distance between us. 19th century South African pastor Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, The Journey Towards Holiness, he weighs in on this idea and he writes this, humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. Both of those quotes seem to make it clear that when we exist in a prideful state, we're not only doing damage to ourselves, but we're doing damage to the world around us. And like a good parent, God loves His children enough to step in and to save us from ourselves, sometimes to bring us low. In the same way that God takes an active role in opposition to pride, God lifts up the humble. Over and over again, we read things in the Bible like the following, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We also read in the Bible, the Lord sustains the humble. We read that God crowns the humble with victory. We read in Proverbs that the one who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And there are many, many more verses that talk about the humble. The verses describing God's relationship to those who are humble are just too many to even go into here. The message is clear, however, that in one way or another, that God will lift up the humble. God will lift up the humble. They will be honored. Grace is the reward of the humble, and there's a place in God's larger story for those who surrender to Him. If you remember, the topic of this particular point in the sermon is why is uh, humility important? And one last answer to that question is that arrogance is likely to make you deeply unpopular with other people. In other words, people don't really like people who are arrogant and prideful. There's a little self-interest I'm appealing to here. Back to C.S. Lewis, here's what he has to say in Mere Christianity. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault 
which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Now, you may be thinking, okay, BP, got it. You sort of, you, okay, enough. You may be thinking, why am I going on and on about this? And the answer is because I firmly believe that humility leads to flourishing. Flourishing for you as an individual and flourishing for the people in your life. And I believe that your unchecked pride or arrogance will actually do exactly the opposite. I believe that pride or arrogance will lead you to disintegration, to use a philosophical term, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, it will lead to your disintegration. And not only will it lead to your disintegration, it will lead to the disintegration of the community in which you live. So the question is, if that's true, if there's these, all these self-interested reasons for seeking humility and avoiding pride, what should you do? What should your action item be for this point in particular? And I'm going to give you one action item. I'll give you a couple more in the next point. But this action item is one that will last throughout the week, and it involves you doing something in the morning and in the evening. I'm going to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer for the next seven days, once in the morning and once in the evening. And what I'm going to argue is the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful antidote to pride. It it gives us a wonderful gift of humility. It acknowledges that God is our Father, that this is His world. It acknowledges that we desire to see His will done and not our own, and His name lifted up, not our own. And so I want to ask you this week, morning and evening for the next seven days, to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Finally, I want to encourage you to look at Jesus. And I want you to see how Jesus is our model. The book of John begins with one of the most memorable sections of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What we see here in John What we see him writing about is what theologians call the state of Christ's humiliation. That would be sort of the way the Westminster Confession talks about it. John draws our attention to the fact that though Jesus was God and though the world was made through him, he entered into his own rebellious creation in order to redeem it. Jesus intentionally made himself low in order to identify with us in our temptations, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our weaknesses. Listen to the words of Hebrews 4 as they describe Jesus' humiliation in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So look at Jesus, your great high priest who has been tempted in every way that you are, yet was without sin. That's an amazing experience that he went through to identify with you. In fact, in some ways, Jesus' ministry was his humility. He not only entered into creation to redeem it, he entered into creation to know your pain, to know your suffering, to experience your frailty. And Jesus' humility not only involved him entering in, but his humility also involved him giving up. Throughout his life, Jesus consistently surrendered his will to his Father's will, 
As you well know, on the last night of Jesus' life, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what was God the Father's response to the obedience of his Son? Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father was proud of his Son and honored him for his life of humility. So what do we do with all of this? We become low that others might be lifted up. We surrender our wills to the loving will of our heavenly Father. But finally, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. We look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that um, we would choose to become low, to make ourselves low, that we would give the spotlight to other people, Father, that we would um, surrender our will to your will, Father, that we would, uh, that we would be obedient. And Father, when you do bring us low apart from our plans and our choices, Father, I pray that we would receive that gift of suffering or shame or lowness in a way that uh, we are reminded that you bring us low sometimes because you love us, because you need us to depend upon you. Father, you, you know that that's ultimately what is best for us, that will lead us to flourishing. And so, Father, I pray that we, like your son Jesus, would say, not our wills, but your will be done. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.